Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and it's a Friday, so I'm joined by Terry Fakes for week seven of our Revelation questions. Now, we went on a little hiatus over uh, your trip to Israel and Ash Wednesday, but we're back this Wednesday, and we've really gotten into the teeth of the book here in chapter 11. Give us a quick recap of this week. We are, if you are a futurist and you see a seven-year period of tribulation, we are right in the middle of it, right at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Chapters 11, 12, and 13 are a little bit of an interlude after the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and we can see the seven bowls coming in the second half of the tribulation. So we are talking about the two witnesses and how they are raised up by God to proclaim the word, how they're killed by the beast, but then come back to life three and a half days later. There's some really powerful lessons in this as we get really going into the tribulation. Now, because of when we're recording this, I haven't gotten to listen to the lesson that you taught yet. Uh, do you make a do you make a call on who the witnesses are in the lesson? I do, in the sense that uh, there are two views. One is came about in the early church that because Elijah and Enoch did not die, that that is the identification of the two witnesses. But I find the evidence far more compelling for Moses and Elijah because of the description. Now, is it a literal Moses and Elijah sent back to earth in their person? I'm not dogmatic about that. I think that they are Moses and Elijah figures who are accomplishing what Moses and Elijah did. Right. So, yeah, I, I go with Moses and Elijah rather than Elijah and Enoch, if that's what you're asking. Yeah, it's interesting how people approach that, because you have you have Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right. You have Elijah coming as the front runner in John the Baptist. You've got to think that part of the punishment Elijah got for not having to die is he's got to come back down to earth so many times. <laughs> That's from heaven. true. He's going to be thinking, you're sending me down there again. Um, but people oftentimes take that semi-figuratively. You have the law and the prophets that are bearing right. witness through right. Moses and Elijah. Um, but you also get some very wild interpretations as as all over the book of Revelation. You can get some very wacky things on who these people are. Uh, but that's probably the standard approach. The the uh, some some people construe it as the Old Testament, New Testament. You have the people of Israel, the people of the church, and right. the two witnesses together. But I've always thought that Moses and Elijah are probably the most likely. Yeah, I mean the text itself, the descriptions of turning the water to blood is such a Moses figure, and then the three and a half years with Elijah and uh, Ahab and the prophets of Baal. It just seems really clear cut. To me, that that in other words, you'd have to have compelling evidence for me to not think that. So, right. but it, it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways with the law yes. and the prophets and the transfiguration. But it's a beautiful story that God is sending witnesses to do what Moses and Elijah did for the people, right? Leading people out of bondage and turning people's heart back to God. It's just so beautiful how it all connects. So that, that would be my view, and it sounds like that would be your view as well. Well, we got a couple of really good questions this week. <clears throat> the first question, 
uh, is, is a good tie-in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which there's so much of in Revelation. Is the altar and incense of Exodus 30 the same, at least symbolically, as the altar and incense in Revelation 8, verse 3? This is a very good question. This is somebody that's reading their Bible reading and the Revelation and just making connections. So if you remember in Exodus 30, this is the altar of incense, and God is uh, speaking to Moses about building an altar on which to burn incense. He tells him how big it will be, that it will be covered with gold, and that you will put it in front of the veil that is above the Ark of the Testimony. So it is an altar covered with gold on which you would burn incense, and its location is before the ark. Uh, the ark would be behind a veil. So in a sense, the incense is being burned before the place where they believe God's presence was, that God literally, his presence upon earth was focused on the top of the ark. So now fast forward to Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, and you're going to see some similarities. So with the uh, trumpet, you get the idea the angel came, stood at the altar, had a golden censer, and he put incense to offer. And with that incense, also the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the Christians on this golden altar. But this time it's in front of the throne of God. So to make a just a short answer, I'm going to say, yes, I do think this is symbolically the same thing. Even though one is in front of the ark, the other is in front of the throne of God. They are in front of the, the dwelling place of God, if you will. And so I see a mirroring here of the incense being given to God in the Old Testament and here incense being given to God in heaven. And I think it's beautiful that the prayers of the saints are described as being sweet-smelling incense to God. So, yes, that's a great connection. I do think that what you're seeing is the uh, the Old Testament tabernacle is a model for the throne room of God. Mm -hmm. The next question is, is not a connection across the Bible, but a connection within Revelation. In Revelation 7.13, the 144,000 and multitudes in white robes, are these the same people as those in Revelation 6, 9, the souls under the altar? Again, really good question, uh, because they don't appear to be in a sense that one group is under the altar. The second group, and that is in chapter 6, the second group in chapter 7 is a great multitude standing before the throne and before the Lamb. But let's look into it just a little bit more. In chapter 6, verse 9, when the fifth seal is opened, under the altar are the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So who are these people? They are uh, Christians. They're believers who have been killed because of preaching the gospel or witnessing. We would call them martyrs. They were killed for proclaiming the word of God. And now let's fast forward and let's look at chapter 7. Chapter 7, you have 144,000 from every tribe, 12,000 from each tribe. And then right after that, 
He says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, clothed in white robes, crying in a loud voice, uh, salvation belongs to our, our God. So here you have two groups of people. And I want to bring the 144,000 into this because futurist view is going to bring these two together. And then you see Christians who have died, but are in heaven with the white robes. Again, the imputed, I'm going to call that an imputed righteousness that Christ has given to them. So from a futurist point of view, you would say that, yes, these are the same people. It's a little trickier because futurists want to be chronological, but you would be getting two views that they would say that both of these groups of people are people that were martyred in the tribulation. The second group in chapter seven, uh, these are Gentiles, the ones that come from all tribes and nations that are martyred in the tribulation. The 144,000 are Jews who become Christians who are not going to be martyred in the tribulation. So from a futurist point of view, you're seeing Christians being martyred in the tribulation. From a symbolic point of view, again, they're basically the same people, but they're not restricted to being martyred during the tribulation because a symbolic point of view is not going to locate all these trials in a seven-year period in the future. They're going to locate it through the whole church age. And so you get the martyrs and faithful Christians throughout the entire church age. So there, there is differences of opinion, and I'm kind of glossing over that to avoid a lot of detail. But basically, futures will say they're all coming out of the tribulation. Symbolic will say they're all martyrs coming out of the church age. But in general, it's two views of the same group of people. That would, in my view, that's probably the predominant view, although there are commentators that will disagree slightly. The third question is an overarching question. I think one of the more difficult questions for the book of Daniel and its relation to uh, the book of Revelation and also what we talked about a couple of weeks ago and in our overviews, <laughs> the books of First and Second Thessalonians. So here's one of the major questions in end times and in prophecy what is the abomination that causes desolation in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27? A great question. We picked up Daniel's prophecy as a little bit of a sidebar as we got into the lesson this week, because it's a great time to tie in Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Uh, so here, halfway through the tribulation is a good time to pause because in chapter 11, you begin to get the concept for the first time in Revelation of the three and a half years or the 1,260 days. And so it was a good time to go back and pick that up from Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, though, you also get this idea in 924 through 27, not just the 70 weeks, but in the middle of the 70th week which for a futurist is right at chapter 11, in the middle of the seven years of tribulation, you're going to see the Antichrist show up, and he will indeed show up in the next couple of weeks in our series, in chapters 12 and 13. And he is going to, in the first half of that seven years, make a, a covenant, but then he's going to break it, and he's going to defile the temple and turn on the people of God, and he is going to... Uh, 
bring the abomination that causes desolation, whatever that is. So Daniel comes to play at this point in time because of the behavior of the Antichrist. So what is the abomination that causes desolation? I'll give you a view, and then I'll let you add anything you want, Cole. But this appears to me to be, first of all, what basically is the idea? It is something that's set up in the temple. And it is a an abomination is something vile or idolatrous or unclean that is going to make the temple impure. It's something shouldn't be there, whether it's an idolatrous statue or it's a sacrifice of something unclean. It is going to be an abomination in God's temple and God's place. I think that if you look at Daniel, you can look at this as happening several times, and I'll give you three. Uh, three times people think this has happened. The first is uh, looking forward to the time of the Maccabees before Jesus. This is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Antiochus Epiphanes, who oppressed the Jews uh, in 168 BC, set up an altar in the temple of God over the altar that they used and sacrificed a pig, amongst other things, on that altar and defiled it. He also wanted the Jews to sacrifice pigs. And instead, Mattathias and his sons, whom we think of as the Maccabees, rebelled and overthrew it and eventually purified the temple. So Antiochus Epiphanes is an antichrist figure meaning he's opposed to everything that's good and opposed to God, and he defiled the temple. Fast forward a little bit to the time of the Romans. And if you're a preterist, think, uh, you're going to see this as a, as a fulfillment of that prophecy, is the Romans, when they came to the temple to destroy the temple in 70 AD, also defiled the temple. And they also defamed it with uh, sacrifices and images of the emperor. And so some would say they desolated the temple with an abomination. And then finally, what probably comes into play most for us is that in the futurist view, the Antichrist is going to take over the rebuilt temple and he is going to make abominable sacrifices and set himself up as God in the temple of God. So some people see this idea as playing itself out more than once in history. But for futurists, probably the focus is that this is something the Antichrist is going to do to uh, desecrate God's temple in the future, in the seven years of the tribulation. So a lot, a lot of views on that, but it's interesting that you can see this happening multiple times in history. Definitely. Anything you'd add to that, Cole? <clears throat> no, I think that's a that's a great framework for that. I think it's a difficult text because it depends on so many other factors. So, for example, uh, the timeline of when you think Revelation was written and when you think it's referring to both play into this. Right. Uh, if you think this is written after seventy then, of course, it couldn't be the Roman uh, defilement. It's got to be some future defilement. On the other hand, if, if you're a preterist and you think that this is uh, referring to the destruction of the temple, then you've got to be pretty clear about what happened in the temple before it was destroyed. 
Right. And, um, you know, on the, on the flip side of things, I think the futurist view requires on this point that the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt. Right. And this is not the only place uh, that there are some uh, futurists, premillennial dispensationalists that believe the sacrificial system will be started again in a new temple, that a literal Antichrist will take that over. Uh, right. So you have a lot of contingencies here that are all wrapped up into this question. I, I've always been very partial to most of Revelation being about the destruction of the temple. Uh, and uh, that coincides with me to what I think Matthew 24 is about and right. several of the passages in Paul, uh, which has its, has its difficulties. You have to have a very early sure. date. You have to have right. a specific kind of language being used. But I do think that there's something to the fact that I think it's Vespasian at this point uh-huh. tries to set up a statue of himself for them to right. worship in the temple while his son Titus is uh, destroying right. Destroying Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So I, I've always found that to be a very compelling reference for this. Of course, that means you have to adopt an early date. And I think the deconstruction language of the universe first applies to the destruction of the temple and then to the very end of all things uh, in a different way. But this is a very complicated question, like you said. And you're right. Some of these ideas, you kind of open the door to something people see in the book of Revelation is not all of these are completely mutually exclusive. So for me, I look at this probably in a little bit more symbolic view in this sense I really do. And there are a lot of people that think that the prophecy in Daniel is really about Antiochus Epiphanes uh, before the time of Jesus. And I think that is a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. And Antiochus is an archetypal antichrist figure. And it's also possible this is going to be fulfilled by the antichrist in the seven years in the future in other words i don't know that you have to necessarily pick because god is is so amazing that he actually predicts things that come true more than once so i i do think this is a case where it's not mutually exclusive yeah i've been teaching that actually right now in a bible study on what should we, how should we read the biblical prophets? And I think one of the cornerstones of reading biblical prophecy is understanding that there is progressive fulfillment of many of these prophecies, both right. in the immediate future of the prophet, in kind of the salvation future of Christ, in the eschatological future. Uh, there are definitely repetitions that we should pay attention to. And that's the way a lot of prophecy is fulfilled, is through these types of each other that come and they get greater or even more cosmic sometimes as you go on uh, right. but they but they have multiple fulfillments and you know the the final word on that to me is that god is not a predictor of the future he's not like a nostradamus or somebody predicting events happening he is the architect of the future. So he doesn't just say, well, this is going to happen and it happens. He actually can say it in a way that it happens and history unfolds with a multiple fulfillments. That's not somebody predicting the future. He's architecting the future. And I I think that's important to remember that uh, the future is not just something that God can foresee. The future is something that God is shaping. Right. 
Well, that's a great place to end it for this week. And I just want to remind everybody to continue asking these great questions, either texting in or emailing in info at sowespeak.com. Uh, we really enjoy going through these. We probably get one or two each week that we answer before we get them on the podcast. Sometimes they, they're on both, uh, but we really, really appreciate the questions and uh, continue to ask them. We're just now at the halfway point, almost a halfway uh, for the series. So we've got a lot to cover, a lot of revelation to come and a lot of great questions. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. We'll be right back.